Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. This is the fourth in a series of online panel discussions on COVID-19 and the future of the New Zealand economy. In this session, the panellists discuss the future after COVID-19, what it could mean for the future of work, digital technology and government. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the fourth in our series Spotlight webinars. We've been looking at the impact that COVID has been having on the New Zealand economy. And this week, we're going to talk about the future of work, technology, government. I'm Professor Alan Bollard. I'm Professor of Practice in the Wellington School of Business and Government. And I'll be moderating this session. And it's my pleasure to introduce our panelists today. So we have online to talk to you, Associate Professor Val Hooper. She's Head of the School of Marketing and International Business. Welcome, Val. We've got Professor Alexander Richter, who's the MBA Academic Program Leader and in the School of Information Management. Welcome, Alex. And Garol, Professor Garol Karagalu, Head of the School of Government. We're all from the Wellington School of Business and Government at Victoria University, and we're very pleased to be here today. And beautiful weather in Wellington today. We're, I think, been hearing the bells of Wellington Cathedral peeling out. We've survived the lockdown. We're back at L1, and it's a great setting for us to continue our conversation today. So far, in the series, we've talked about short-term economic responses to COVID. We've talked about how to handle the recovery. We've talked about how not to waste a good crisis. And now we want to talk about work, technology and government. Uh, we, we've gone through a huge two and a half months of lockdown. It's over today. We've survived that period. We've learned a lot about COVID through this period. We have been learning a lot about the economic implications of COVID. And we now want to ask some questions about, are we into a new normal? What's that new normal like? What is temporary? What could be ongoing? And how do we adapt to all of that? We're um, still trying to understand how long we're in economic recession. The World Bank came out yesterday with some new forecasts. It says that the world as a whole is going to contract its economy by 5% this year. That's the really bad news. And actually, almost all economies that they're forecast in the world will be in recession for some time during this year. Uh, the good news is that they see significant bounce back next year. They're still talking about a V-shaped recovery. And as we've gone through this, we've said one of the key issues is, are we going to bounce back in the short term? Or is it going to be more of a U-shaped recovery where we have some time in recession? And if so, things are going to be somewhat different. But we do know that the COVID experience has pushed us all into a new phase. It's a new place. We know that work and technology and government have all changed over the last two months. We want to know if those things changed forever. Are they changed for good or changed for bad? Are they going to keep on changing? How do we adapt to them? Can we control them? 
But our panelists aren't going to give you simple answers to that. We're academics. So we're going to, I hope, give you ways to think about this, frameworks to think about them, questions to ask as well. But let's start with the technology. So Alex, I've lived, spent my morning on Zoom. I'm going to spend my afternoon on Zoom. Um, Zoom as a company, I had never heard of last year, but now is valued on the stock market at worth more than the seven biggest airlines in the world all put together. What does that say about communication? What's that telling us? We used to meet people, we used to interact, argue, agree with them, and now we Zoom them. Overnight, we changed our work habits. What's this all going to mean? Is it fundamentally changing things about how we communicate? What are you seeing? What are you thinking, Alex? Thanks for the introduction, Ellen. Yeah, that's actually, uh, I think, uh, important questions. I'm also trying to understand myself. As you said, I'm coming from a digital angle. And the first thing I would say about your question is, like, Zoom has increased in value, but we know since several years that digital is increasingly important. And if we look into the stock index, then we don't only f find Zoom, but we find Amazon and, and Google and other major companies that uh, are in the meantime more valuable than major uh, global companies, car manufacturers or industrial companies or consultancies. So I think we have been aware before this lockdown that um, digital has an important impact. And when we now talk about the digital transformation, I would say what the lockdown did um, was acting as a facilitator in a way for digital transformation in many ways. So my per, uh, personal angle in the next five minutes is um, on digital work, since we're talking about obviously the future of work. And uh, what I'm asking myself is, what uh, can we learn from the lockdown for this ongoing digital transformation? But also, we already know about digital work um, that can help us to understand the current situation and then maybe improve this current situation and at the end of the day, what I have uh, in mind is IT can actually improve productivity and well-being, but it can also, on the contrary, reduce productivity and well-being. So we have to be really aware of what actually these uh, digital work solutions or IT solutions can do for us. So I personally have enjoyed uh, the Zoom meetings, but I know that there's also things like Zoom fatigue. So I have five terms for you that I want to discuss in the next five minutes. One, I already started a bit talking about uh, the lockdown as a facilitator. I want to talk a bit about context in the uh, context of digital work, about a term that some of you might not have heard in this context, which is called appropriation. Um, then number four is ad hoc collaboration. And the last one is ability. And as I said, I want to spend about a minute with each of the terms. So now when we see what happened during the lockdown, and I know this from talking to uh, project partners that I had or still have, uh, but also from talking to our um, executive MBA students, for example, we see on the one side the employees, and the employees have actually been making sense of, of uh, the lockdown of the digital work tools, and they became more adept in using these tools. Um, they explored new routines, new habits, and they tried to make sense what what is in for them for example there were things like virtual zoom tea, mornings teas or um, after work social zooming but there were obviously whole meetings online and so on 
Um, I think what is important uh, to keep in mind is that these technologies don't tell us how we have to use them. If you look Zoom, it's, it's, it just supports communication, but what type of communication or collaboration you have is not uh, kind of dictated by the technology. So what we all have been doing, I guess, is to some extent experimenting and reflecting, and this is still not over. So this is the user side. We have also a leadership perspective uh, on this. So we have a lot of executives and they try to also understand um, how can I support my employees, but also how can I make sure that they're still on track with, their, with what they're doing. And uh, so for some of these uh, leaders, actually, we saw that some of the misconceptions have, have resolved. For example, they, um, from talking to a lot of our executives, I saw that they don't feel that their people, their team uh, are less productive um, and they get things done and they are still visible. But there's other, what I would call, misconceptions. And so the next word I have is one of these misconceptions. Um, it's context. So what, we, what I personally heard and others heard is that digital work is more stressful and tiring. And I guess, Ellen, you're also a bit relating to that, right? You spend the whole day in Zoom meetings. And of course, being in, in front of the screen the whole day is, is tiring. But the reason we spend so much in front of the screen is not so much that um, Zoom tells us to do so. It's because of the specific context of this crisis. Um, during the lockdown, a lot of companies, also we as a university, were kind of in a, in a crisis mode. We had high nation needs. And for this, we needed to talk. We needed to make sense of the situation, not so much about the technology, but more how do we approach our clients? How can we collaborate? How do we approach our students? Um, so these coordination needs were stressful. They would also have been stressful if we could have met in person, but we were not allowed to do so now. So basically the context that all this has been very stressful for weeks, for many of uh, us, it means, oh, well, but then obviously digital work as such is stressful. But my, I would argue that it's rather um, the context that was stressful, not the tool as such. So obviously there have been a lot of online meetings, but there's also asynchronous tools. And that's also important to mention. My second word is appropriation. Um, or uh, simpler uh, adoption. So we had some adoption phase now. People tried to make sense a few weeks. Now many think we're well, all over. We know how to use it. Um, done. But uh, what we know from, from uh, research ongoing over years is that this appropriation, making sense of the technologies and embracing them and, and figuring out what is in personally for me is actually something that takes time. It takes time to, to understand, but it also takes time to communicate with others, to communicate benefits and risks. So I would argue that uh, this um, appropriation is not over yet. My fourth word is ad hoc collaboration. So what I want to say about this is, it's a bit related to context. When you um, try to make sense of this crisis and you have a high coordination effort, then obviously you use Zoom all the time. Um, and it makes sense if we have things to discuss urgently, but it doesn't mean that we have to have these Zoom meetings on a regular basis if it's not necessary. So as part of the sense making, many thought, oh, we have to transfer what was face-to-face uh, -face into the digital. Now we had show fixes before, now let's have show fixes uh, digitally as well. 
but it's actually uh, it's not absolutely necessary to have online show fixes all the time. If we have a coordination effort, it's actually really easy to send a mail and say, can we just meet online? It's easier than before when we actually had efforts like logistical, like we had to take transport to meet and so on. Now that the expectations hopefully are a bit less that we have to meet all the time in person and have to reserve a meeting room, we also don't have to have meetings all the time. And my last word, visibility. Um, and this is a bit about leadership. So what, what I saw and what also other researchers observed in, in other cultures and countries was that um, since employees and, and, um, are less visible now because they're just not there, they feel I have to now via digital, I have to become more visible. I have to make up for that. So they're, they're putting a lot of effort into signaling to their leader, to their colleagues, hey, I'm still there and they want to engage. Whereas they don't even expect, their colleagues don't even expect that, their leaders don't expect that. They know they get their stuff done. So this perceived need for higher visibility by employees actually impacted them in a way that they felt more stressed and made more effort to be visible. Uh, but in reality, it was not expected by their leaders. So I think here what we need is social protocols. Um, so we have to work on, on the social norms in a company. What, uh, for, from a leadership perspective, what do I need? Uh, what do I expect of my people? How often do I want to be in touch with them? And once these expectations are communicated, it's easier for the individual to take again a step back and say, okay, it's not as stressful as I thought. So these were the four uh, misconceptions that I have. I'm still more around, and I'm looking forward to discuss a bit more with you. Well, thanks very much, Alex. Well, um, Alex has talked about social protocols, but is it social protocols? Um, let's hear a bit more about some of the psychological social impacts. How will organizations, employers, employees adapt? What's it going to mean for the future of organizations and management? Alex talked about leadership and he talked about employees. Actually, um, Girol is my boss, but has my relationship to Girol changed as a result of seeing him on Zoom and not seeing him in the flesh for the last three months? How are these things subtly changing? What, what's your pick on this? Right, I'll, I'll cover that in a wee while. I'd like to start off by saying one truth is that man is a social being. We crave socialization. And as a result, when we feel deprived of it, we interact in other different ways, or we try to figure out ways to communicate and to socialize. So what I'll do is I'll address this, first of all, from the sociological perspective and the psychological perspective, and then look at the work and work environment, as well as the role of managers in how we influence the work and the work going into the future. I'll also indicate a bit of the economic impact of the um, lockdown on the workforce. So let's look at the socialization aspect um, or the social aspect. First of all, we went into isolation and that in itself created anxiety because we crave that socialization. So, we were deprived of that. In a way, we 
um, enhanced our socialization within, in our bubbles. And then we resorted to technology to facilitate that communication that we were lacking. And many of us resorted to Zoom, but you've got the simple telephone and the mobile phone. There were many ways of communicating technologically. With regard to the psychological, that whole thing meant change. So there was a change in our social environment as well as in the work situation of many people. And um, well, I would say rather the employment situation because many people were deprived of their income or had reduced income. So there was that additional anxiety. So you have a workforce that is going through a state of quite significant anxiety. And as a manager, you've got to recognize that. In addition, what that introduced was a short-term focus. And many people embarked on short-term training, such as micro-credentials and that sort of thing, either to get themselves out of the, the employment predicament or else to do something useful in their lockdown. Which leads me to the work situation. The work environment changed. So we went from many of us having our own offices, our own my workspace, to going to a home where many of us are not sufficiently privileged to have our own studies and workspaces at home. And very often, families were sharing dining rooms with children also sharing that dining room table from which to work. So that whole work environment and even sharing work facilities, many homes only had one or two computers. They didn't have a computer for every, every person in that um, family. So that changed significantly. Productivity in terms of ideas and idea generation. Some of us felt that that was heightened and many people were very productive and very creative with ideas, whereas others felt we missed those water cooler conversations where ideas get sparked off by chance remarks and chance discussions with colleagues. Um, there's also the issue of presence and prominence to be promoted within the organization. And there's the old maxim, if you want to be promoted within an organization, you have to be seen. And that, in fact, what worked against telecommuting about 20 years ago, because those people felt that they were not sufficiently seen. So they went back to the workplace. What has been interesting from a managerial perspective is that people who appeared prominently in the actual workplace receded to a certain extent and others came to the fore in the online environment and became far more prevalent and more prominent. Which brings me to a focus on the task. And there has been a much greater focus on the task being done than on how the task is done. And in fact, that is very much the essence of gig work and it's very much the essence of our contracts, our employment contracts. They usually state the tasks that have to be done, the graduate attributes or the attributes of whoever is going to be employed doing that task. But 
there's very seldom is there an actual statement of how the task has to be done. So there's been a far greater trust on the part of the employer and the leader of a certain department or organization that the staff member will do the job rather than how they'll do the job. It's getting the job done. And that requires respect. It requires trust. It requires responsibility from the employee's perspective. And the recent focus on surveillance technology, although we do have surveillance technology in most of our organizations, and that is very often for security, but surveillance of how people are doing their jobs, that has brought the whole issue of trust and respect into question. From a manager's perspective, um, I have personally found that meetings take far longer online. Now, that's not to say that that technology won't evolve and we won't be able to have a more realistic meeting style, but certainly conducted via Zoom when people speak in sequence, um, meetings take longer, and also people want to socialize. So they hang in there in the meetings so that they can socialize as well. Meetings are not only there to discuss issues and make decisions. Meetings actually have a socialization role. Um, with regards to the ability to have those water cooler conversations and simply to pop into someone and just check up on this or check up on that, that ability is greatly reduced. So you will either have a Zoom discussion with someone or you'll phone them, but it's not that chance popping in to see someone as you pass them along the passage. From the economic perspective, um, certainly our transport costs have been reduced significantly and also the transport time. Um, the opportunity for casual and convenience shopping has been reduced. Um, there have, however, been increased home energy consumption costs. There have been increased home work-related costs, such as printer, um, cartridges, etc. And there've also been the connectivity costs at home. So those things have increased, whereas from the work perspective and the work environment, they've probably decreased. Um, what I think this has provided us with is an opportunity to see what we like about this environment and what we don't like and what we feel that we can adapt to in future. And this, is, this brings to the fore another truism, and that is that man is an adaptable creature. So not only are we social creatures, but we're also very, very adaptable. My view on what will happen when we return to work, I think there'll be a pendulum swing. Many people will be really thrilled to get back to seeing their colleagues and, and going back into the social environment, but many will still hanker after the relative quietude of doing work in, a, in an uninterrupted fashion at home. So I think the pendulum will swing one way, it'll swing the other way, and gradually the arc of that swing will reduce until we arrive at what I would like to call 
a constrained flexibility situation. So that is my contribution. Thanks, thanks very much, Val. And Gerald, you are back in the office. You're um, in Rutherford House uh, in Wellington. You can look out and see the beehive. You're in the middle of the government departments there and you're head of the School of Government. So what about the public sector and government in all of this? We've seen a huge increase in government spending more than ever before in a very short space of time. We've seen government taking on new functions, sort of like an employer of last resort. We're going to see a huge increase in government debt, possibly seeing a big increase in government scope with things like tracking and tracing. So Garol, um, what's government going to do about this? Has something fundamentally changed? Has our relationship with government changed in all of this? What, what are you seeing? Thank you, Alan. I want to take the five minutes you've given me to turn the spotlight on a very exciting possibility looking beyond the immediate COVID-19 related matters and uh, highlighting the very exciting role for governments at all level uh, in that. I want to start by highlighting that COVID-19 uh, does not change uh, any of the main environmental, social and economic trends that had been troubling us in New Zealand for some time and that were highlighted in the 2019, not 2020, 2019 budget table one, mental health, youth suicide, homelessness, child poverty, environmental degradation, biodiversity loss, low economic productivity and so on. Owing to the pandemic, we have witnessed and as you said, an expansion of the government's role in the economy and society at a pace and on a scale without modern precedent. And uh, we know from past similar episodes, such as the two world wars, the Great Depression and so on, once the government spending taxation and debt increases so substantially uh, based on such uh, major events, it's very difficult to peel it back down again. Uh, we also know that this expansion in itself will do no lasting good, uh, throwing billions of dollars at our immediate problems, while it was absolutely the right thing to do to provide some stability and ease the pain, um, will not provide any sustainable solutions to the wicked problems I referred to earlier. Uh, however, here is where the excitement comes based on academic work and history. In their 2012 book, why Nations Fail and their subsequent 2019 book, The Narrow Corridor. Jim Oler and Robinson described similar historical scenarios in which deep-seated instability leads to sweeping institutional changes. Although they say it's very difficult to predict the direction of those changes, it will depend on institutions, power, politics, and leadership. Uh, in that context, and this is where I start getting more and more excited, Alan, using this most unfortunate experience deliberately as a catalyst to collectively reimagine and remake New Zealand is a great possibility for us. And as you know, and as you've said in your earlier comments as well, now everybody is talking about it. There's one way of doing it was the way that the British did in 1942, where William Beveridge from the London School of Economics led a government committee uh, to, led, uh, to lead to a post-war British welfare state, social security, healthcare, and so on and so forth. Uh, what I'm imagining is doing it in a completely different way, uh, 
by leading, encouraging, and enabling the communities to lead the way with the center following and supporting. And to convince you that this is not a hallucination and that's actually happening, if you look at Queenstown, where for years, the business community kept pumping more and more infrastructure to increase tourism, despite the social fabric implications and environmental implications of that that were that troubling the community, when the tourism um, flow started turning off after COVID, the business community joined the wider community and started to reimagine Queenstown possibly with very little or no tourism. And they talked about uh, Queenstown as a place where it could incubate ideas. Sir, Sir Paul Callaghan said, uh, imagining Queenstown or New Zealand at large as a place where talent wants to live, attracting those people and uh, creating ideas in New Zealand and then selling it to the rest of the world. With the, with the New Zealand government being a partner, a patient investor uh, in infrastructures, by which I mean environmental, social, and economic infrastructures. I hope you're listening, um, Alan, because infrastructure is environmental, social, and economic infrastructures that will make it happen. And this could also pave the way to a different way of governing. Again, I'm not hallucinating. Two months ago, uh, there was a cross-party governance form arrangement formed across all the parties focusing on addressing mental health. They realized that that's one of the wicked problems highlighted earlier, that such things are beyond politics. They need to be grabbed and embraced and dealt with at a governance level by parliament. So that's fantastic, which would lead to the abolition of the meaningless and ideological ongoing talk about market failure versus government failure, and instead thinking of a paradigm where the government and the NGOs, local communities, uh, business, scientific community are partners, which is the world the great scholar Mariano Mazzucato has been imagining for a long time. Uh, and uh, what that does is to put the community at the center of our conversations with the center actually then coming and supporting and imagining and the leadership is about pulling in all those different parties to have this conversation and to change New Zealand in a very beautiful way. And I thank you for this opportunity. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. It's very interesting. So um, Alex Dowell, um, is he hallucinating? Uh, when you've been talking about workplaces, what about if we go beyond the workplace? Uh, there's there's been quite a long line of economic thinking around urban economics, which cities uh, are there for particular reasons. They are very efficient at doing certain things, much more so than the countryside. Uh, and also, we know there's some things you can do at a distance, and there's other things called handshake transactions where you've got to actually be there. Now, is that all changing? Um, is New Zealand's competitive advantage going to change when you look beyond the workplaces and the homes that you both just talked about? Garol has been talking about a place where talent comes to live. What, what do you think could happen if you take your views of the new workplace and the new ways of organising people and go a bit further into New Zealand as a country? I would like to venture that um... Certainly Kiwis are, you know, they, they, they refer to the number eight fencing wire mentality. 
And, and that is the can-do mentality of adaptability and flexibility. And I think that's a very, very strong um, personality trait of the people of the country and also the way in which we work. And we've allowed that in the workplace as well. We've allowed that flexibility and that creativity. Um, many other countries are far more rigid um, in terms of who's allowed to do what and who's allowed to come up with what. We've got a high percentage of small and medium-sized enterprises. And in fact, we saw this creativity come to the fore very, very much during the lockdown. Uh, people took stock of the, the resources that they had and they said, look, the opportunities in this area have shut, that door is shut to us, which other doors are open? And they exploited those opportunities. They went through those alternative doors. Um, so I think in terms of it being restricted to Queenstown, well, I think Queenstown is an ideal starting place, but it's happened in many, many other areas. And I certainly think that there is opportunity for that. Alex. Val already mentioned two points that I also had in mind, flexibility and creativity. So what I, when I think about these terms, what I especially mean is that um, this, um, what the lockdown did for us from this digital transformation point of view is making us aware also of the opportunities. Um, and so I'm not obviously not arguing that we should not be uh, in face-to-face -face, uh, interactions at all anymore, but uh, what the lockdown actually did for us, and there's already studies that show this, is that bringing us forward in within weeks what would have normally happened over years. Um, and I think this is positive because we as a society understand much better what this flexibility means for us, how our economy actually can build on, up on creativity. I totally agree with Val and Giro on that. Also, the one thing where I want to slightly contradict uh, Giro is when he said nothing changed at all. The thing that can change with this um, future of work and digital transformation, in my opinion, is actually environment. So I think that's a really important point for me that, so we are on an island here in New Zealand quite far off. And I think maybe we can to some extent agree that just flying around continents like this happened for a long time now is maybe not looking into the cl climate uh, situation is maybe not the best idea. So we need to come up with also new ways of interacting that do not always include traveling. So from that perspective, the environment in my opinion is a big winner. Um, of this, if there's winners at all in this situation, but at least um, um, of the situation of this being aware of what is actually happening. Um, so, and the last so um, positive point I have in mind is actually reputation. Um, I think what the lockdown did for us now being to, uh, sitting here now with zero cases in New Zealand is uh, acknowledged around the world. I mean, we are still a small economy in a small country, but um, just, just in our, our prime minister and, and generally our leadership, um, I have actually been really acknowledged as, uh, you know, like role models around the world. Um, our economy, depending on how it will recover, might then also be because now we can again 
yeah, go full steam will also possibly be a role model in a way. So I think this is very, very positive um, for the reputation of New Zealand. And then bringing this all together, being a, a creative country, a flexible country that knows how to be close, but also to be remote and is sustainable in a way, keeping environment in mind, is I think it's all positive factors that can contribute to hopefully rather V-shape than a U-shape. Thanks. Um, let's go to Val and then I'd like to go back to Girol. Sorry, Girol, I, I will probably be jumping in before you, but I would just like to latch on to one thing that Girol indicated, and that was with regard to the role of the leaders in bringing all these various parties together, the communities and so on and so forth. And I think that is very, very important to take note of. And for the leaders to realize that their roles have actually changed. They are far more facilitatory than previously. Um, and I think that at whatever level you are a leader, you need to take cognizance of that. Um, now, just one other point that Alex mentioned, and this was with regard to the impact on the climate. I have often reflected through this period that it took strong action by a government to actually say, this is what we're doing and this is how we're going to do it for something to happen. And while COVID-19 was an immediate crisis, um, many would say that the climate change crisis is immediate and in fact is already upon us. And it takes a concerted effort I would say not only by people and various pockets of people and communities, but I think there's a role for government and for governments around the world to step in and say, so far and no further, and this is what we're going to have to do to counteract um, the, the detrimental effects of climate change. Well, Girol, um, Jacinda, according to BBC this morning, said she did a little dance of joy when she heard that the last active case of COVID was over in New Zealand. Uh, where are we in terms of trust in government? Has that changed? Do you think government's role has changed? Do you think the legislature's role has changed in all of this? Uh, to add detail, I also uh, did a dance with my wife and my dog uh, this morning at 5am, but that's by the way. Uh, just two points I wanted to make. I think it relates to the question you're asking, but it's fundamental. Namely, with both Alex and Val, I do accept and completely um, uh, acknowledge that uh, as uh, Michael Spencer, Nobel Prize winner, they are collecting these uh, very live mobility data. There has been a dramatic drop in mobility, and that led to a temporary relief from uh, adverse environmental pressures. There is no doubt about that. And also, as Andy Haldane in a 2020 article very recently said, that what also happened, the social capital got boosted because communities started hugging each other more and there's an increased trust in government. So those, te those temporary and immediate effects are undeniable. What I'm begging for is a leadership that grabs those and turns it into a sustainable improvements in both the national environment and our society, because we do have a increased trust now. We love our government, we trust the government, and the communities are talking to each other. 
divergent interests are converging, hence lies the opportunity for genuine leadership. I thank you. Oh, thanks, Carol. I'm looking at some of the questions, and two of them relate to this question about um, economic recovery, social recovery, and environmental. And of course, we've been in a situation where we've had a very harsh divergence of interests, apparently at one level, between health safety and economic safety. Now we've got two big problems, it seems to me. One of them is making sure we stay healthy in terms of COVID and any new waves of COVID. And the other is getting economic recovery. But you're all talking about environmental issues as well. Can we really cope with these, with adding another big crisis to all of that? Anybody got any thoughts on that? That's one. That's two of the questions that are coming through from participants at the minute. I would just like to say there's one school of thought that says, okay, we're on this um, treadmill of change now. So while we've changed and we are used to change in terms of our adaptation to the COVID-19 crisis, let's crack the environmental crisis or address it at least now that we're up and running. Whereas others would say, let us just sit back and recover. We've gone through a considerably stressful period. So let us just catch our breath before we deal with the next crisis. My concern is that if we sit back to catch our breath, we might want to sit back for too long and then we'll lapse into our old ways. Well, Val, that's all very well, but let's, let me be a bit harsh about that. Uh, we've just, mitigation, climate change mitigation is going to cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. We have just increased our debt over the last three months from 20% government debt from 20% of GDP up to 80%. Suddenly, we're going to owe the world a huge amount of extra money. Can we really now afford to spend more on climate change? Uh, Alex Garol, got any thoughts about that? I mean, in New Zealand, and the decision was really clear. We have the lockdown and this is uh, our priority. And then look into the ec economy after that. And we know that in other countries, as I said, well, our economy is in danger, so we will not be as strict. And we saw the impact so far, uh, the numbers uh, going uh, yeah, up exponentially in some, in some countries, in some cases. So um, I share the opinion that we're also raised in many articles that people said, it's not either or, um, it's not a decision between lives of people and economy on the mid to long term, it can only work together. Um, and, um, and I think it's the same for the climate crisis. Gerald meant, mentioned trust. I think trust is very important, not just for, for the individual when it comes to digital work, where it's obviously very important, do I trust when I Zoom with you or do we need to meet? So that we have uh, more like richness in conversation. But trust also, I think the trust that we currently are able to build um, through how we went through the lockdown and how we come out of the lockdown um, is, is important for our economy, but it's also important for, uh, for our community. It's important how we 
and this was also mentioned by Cheryl and well, how we interact with each other. Uh, so in my opinion, not it's not an either or. It's um, it's about and it's a, a decision that puts sustainability, um, the community, and and our our core values um, of, of of this beautiful country into the core, and then everything else can come with it. So I don't see this as a contradiction, at least on a long term. Girol, um, I thought economics was the study of choices, opportunities, and trade-offs. Okay, okay. Can we have it all? This, this is beautiful because economists are obviously, and for good reason, excellent reason, brilliant reason, are obsessed with that. But uh, uh, the point I want to make, if I go back to my um, Queenstown example, in fact, it's a brilliant example of an investment that actually addresses all three issues at the same time. Excessive focus on tourism was coming with its own investment. The business community was pouring billions, I mean, I'm exaggerating, millions of dollars into infrastructure investment to keep boosting more and more, more, more and more tourism. We imagine in Queenstown as a place where it does not have to excessively rely on tourism, but, uh, the, but universities, ideas and so on actually is still requiring investment. It doesn't have to be funded by the government per se. It can be funded by the private sector and it would both increase revenue, employment, as well as decrease the damage on the natural environment and the damage on social fabric of society, which was suffering from that tourism pressure. So that, to my mind, is a very beautiful example of how you can hit all three birds with one stone with the same dollar. So sometimes there are complementarities, not only trade-offs. And does anything need to change around government or local government to achieve that? Absolutely. One of the big things that, by the way, we keep talking about trust. Uh, for some reason, uh, central government thinks that uh, local regional government don't have any cap capacity or capability. And I keep saying to them, did your child come out and start walking immediately? If you really believe in investing in your child, you spent 30 years looking after it and looking after it and investing in it. But if we really believe that communities need to be at the center of imagining the future, then central government's obligation is to invest in building that capability. That's a very important infrastructure investment. So that's, that again relates to trust, rebuilding that trust. So we're still interested in in um, really what we think has really changed. And you've both said we're also very adaptive and how we're going to change through all of this. We've talked about it from a workplace point of view. We've talked about it from a government and a country point of view. What about from an individual point of view? Do you have any thoughts about how our lives are going to change as we go through this? Is it going to be a big step coming out of lockdown? Is it a chance to reassess how we operate in the economic sphere as a result of this? Any further thoughts? One, uh, one thing I'm hearing is that one of the greatest challenges of the wider public sector is to, how get, to get back their workforce back into their offices. Now, whether that's because they are concerned about uh, the health issues because of hot disking and all that kind of stuff, or whether they find a new way of living, which they love, uh, is I don't know. But certainly, clearly, there is a new balance going to uh, emerge uh, in terms of the work life and so on and so forth. And we keep talking about productivity in a purely economic sense. But if you think of productivity in a well-being sense, then maybe we have a significant increase in productivity in that context. Although I take Bell's point 
that we are just talking about people who are very privileged. And it's not clear that everyone is going to have an increased well-being when they are forced to live and work from their homes. Oh. Yes. Um, first of all, why do the workforce need to get back to their offices? You know, people are saying that, and I don't think they've really clearly identified why they want everybody back. I mean, we all love the hubbub of having lots of people around us and it's exciting and stimulating and lots of interesting conversations going on. But quite frankly, to just stay, say we, we need to get everybody back to work, one needs to think very carefully about exactly why and does everybody need to come back and does everybody need to come back full time? And that brings into question, not necessarily the configuration of offices, um, because some favor open plans, some don't for a variety of reasons. Um, some favor flexible offices, which can be maneuvered around. But the issue is, do we in fact need such huge office buildings if we're going to be working half the workforce at home, half the workforce in the office? Um, do we need, and this has been a question that universities have addressed or are addressing, do we need such huge university buildings with huge lecture theatres? So those are questions that I think a lot of institutions are considering now. Yes, absolutely. And I think you can see that in the value of some property companies in New Zealand, which has reduced quite significantly um, commercial property and some other forms of property, uh, there is some very big issues about what will be stranded assets. And of course, we don't see that in the share price of a university, but the same underlying issue is definitely there. Um, and Alex, can we go to you? I know that you're in the process of trying to work out whether we can have students coming back into traditional lecture theatres and spaces for the next couple of trimesters at Victoria University. What are your thoughts? Um, yes, I just thought about that. Um, obviously, for us as um, researchers and teachers, uh, the thing um, changed a bit. Um, again, I think it's in, in a New Zealand context, it's positive. That's, I, I'm, I'm an, uh, really optimistic. This can help us. I'm saying that we don't want uh, international students to come in, but I think now with also the reputation of, of New Zealand increasing, I would hope that we can provide also new offers, online offers, uh, teaching offers, or more flexible um, offers for people even across New Zealand. Um, so, uh, and, and, and to increase value and, and in a way also well-being. We have in, in, a, in another program just um, actually also introduced an opportunity to study online within New Zealand. And what we saw that um, students really love, love this idea that they can come to Wellington but with the housing prices being so high and, you know, like Wellington being really crowded, a lot of them were really happy that they can come in, but they can also, uh, if they want, stay and, and learn and, and from home. And, and I think that's very positive for us as, as a university. I think this will help us. I want to um, quickly also um, come back to what Val mentioned about the pendulum uh, that really resonates with me. We see that also in a lot of big uh, companies that sometimes the companies say, um, now you all work from home and stay there. And then a bit later they will say, oh, now we want you all back. 
um, one example uh, was actually Yahoo. So they had change of leadership and throughout the years and every time the leaders changed, they completely changed the approach. Um, I think at some point it was Marissa Meyer originally from Google who came in and said, hey, actually, surprising for everybody, actually, I want you all back in the office. And currently, again, uh, other major companies have said, uh, now for every, if you don't want to come in, you stay at home, Microsoft, Twitter, and so on. I'm, I absolutely agree, Cheryl. It's often privileged uh, workers, uh, white collar workers, obviously, there are some others that um, were also now risk during the lockdown. They still had, you know, like they had to risk their, their health, health workers or others, and, uh, and couldn't stay at home. So we have to consider this as well. But overall, I would say the flexibility that we now get through this digital infrastructure can help us. It can increase our ability, our autonomy, our well-being, and it can also help us as an economy, as I mentioned, at least from my perspective of the universities uh, sector. And finally, I, I, I really absolutely agree um, why I'm, I don't, before we don't answer the why, why people need to come back to the office, I don't think we need to see this as a challenge. It's rather like where are the opportunities coming back and where are the opportunities continuing to work remotely um, and to figure this out. And here we're still in a big sense-making process. So that's why I really like this idea of there will be um, contradictory comments from time to time and then somewhere we will hopefully find our ourselves in the middle somewhere. Well, thanks very much, Alex, um, for those concluding comments. We're coming to the end. I just wonder with Garol and Val, if there's any last thoughts you might have. We're a small, distant, but quite cohesive country in New Zealand. That's worked really well for us in terms of suppression of COVID, but at quite a high cost to the economy. And, and we've talked about that. Uh, what would you hope when you look back in a year or two at this event that we might have actually have achieved as a result of this very nasty shock that we're going through at the minute? Or alternatively, what might you be saying that was a wasted opportunity on? Val, have you got any thoughts? I think for many people, this was a wake-up call on the value or with regard to the value of their interpersonal relationships and the people that in our very, very busy lives, we tend to take for granted. And I think it's certainly been um, a realization of how important people are to us. So we should never ever take them for granted and put them in second place to our work. Um, and also I think it's highlighted the value of our friends and family overseas. And many, many people in New Zealand have got friends and family overseas and have been significantly affected by the inability to possibly see them physically. It's one thing not to, or to choose not to see them, but it's another thing to know you cannot see them and when will you see them again? So I think it's a, a, a wake up call as to the value that we really place on other people. Thanks, Gerard. Just to repeat what I said, I don't want to bore people to this, but the point I just wanted to make quickly is that what this uh, most unfortunate event did is to change the conversation in New Zealand. And I think uh, there's a great participation. People are talking about things we didn't talk about before. And I think if we grab this opportunity, 
and uh, bring the communities and everyone else together to reimagine and do something with it. Uh, I think that would be a fantastic thing. And that is what I will be looking for, namely the fact that we are recovering and we seem to be recovering. And Michael Spencer's and others work also seems to show. And today ASB was saying we are almost 98% in terms of activity and all that. If that lulls us to a sense of comfort and we just miss this opportunity and say, oh, well, it's all okay. Next to tourism will come and that will be okay as well. That would be a humongous loss. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Um, Garol, you said change the conversation. We've been having these four webinars and they're all on conversations we couldn't and wouldn't have known about only three months ago. It's been a massive change in the conversation. Thank you very much for attending. I'd like to thank our panelists. Thank you, Garol, Val, Alex, for this. Uh, that's the final of the webinar series. I hope you've enjoyed it. We have. Uh, we'd like to thank all of you for attending and good luck. Get out there and burst your bubbles. Thank you very much. Goodbye. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere Rā.